Welcome to a special Christmas edition of the Twin Geekcast with Calvin and David. This week we're covering John McTiernan's 1988 classic, Die Hard. Movies and friendship, those are mysteries. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. So one of the cool things about our podcast is we get to see kind of our friendship developing. Like, few people really get the chance to have like a recorded document of that. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. Certainly something that we didn't, uh, you know, decide to do because of that. But it's it's definitely an interesting thing. We're we're kind of tracking and seeing how we grow and change and interact over our various podcasts here. I think that's what I look forward to most every week. It's you know we have the films and then you know there's the discussion about the films. Right, because this is like the one time we get like a, you know, more uh, personal chance to talk back and forth. Otherwise, it's, you know, just kind of the, you know, unfriendly text conversations through our various <laughs> ways. And not that our process is completely unfriendly, but it's it gives us a voice and uh, we could kind of lead with our personalities in a way through the podcast and enhance kind of what's going on in the site. Yeah. And I think that's a very great thing that we have, uh, kind of special thing that's fostering here. And I'm excited to see it continue to grow. And I hope everyone else out there is enjoying kind of seeing that, that dynamic develop as well. Yeah, and if you are enjoying, it helps us a lot if you just subscribe and rate us on iTunes. That's the biggest help you could give us. Yeah, let us know how we're doing. Um, but this week we're covering one of the greatest, the greatest Christmas film of all time. Yeah, let's get that to beat out right now. It's not, not a Christmas movie. It's absolutely a Christmas movie. <laughs> it's the best Christmas movie. And... We're going to discuss why in a little bit, but first we have your box office. Yeah, so we're going to start a little bit lower this time because there's a little bit more interesting stuff just outside of the top ten here. Uh, At number 12, we have The Favorite, which I'm pretty sure is in the exact same spot as it was last week, maybe a little higher. Yeah. But either way, I mean, it's, it's just on the brim of being in that sweet spot, but... I mean, it's doing really well. I'm surprised because usually a film like this doesn't get this kind of uh, box office numbers. My review of it just went up on the site, and we don't give tens out just, you know, flagrantly. It's it's such a meaningful film to me that I want to kind of highlight its place here and suggest everyone go see it. Yeah, it's definitely, um, based on your review, it's a fantastic film. Certainly, you know, very special this year, one of the highest... And I'm sure we'll be talking about it a bit more when we come around to the next podcast talking about our favorites from the year. Uh, At number 11, we have the kind of interesting selection here of uh, Once Upon a Deadpool. So that came out this last week, and I had no idea what it was. I I thought it was a new movie, but it doesn't seem like it is. No, you didn't know about this going on? There was a lot of fun advertisement for it. No, what is it? <laughs> oh my. Okay, so you can see the trailer of this afterwards. So it's a PG thirteen cut of Deadpool two, but framed in the context of Deadpool telling the story to a an adult Fred Savage in his <laughs> Princess Bride bedroom, like being held hostage. <laughs> that sounds fantastic, and I see why people are going back to the cinema for it. Mm-hmm. It's it's very much like at first you think about that and it seems like a cash grab, but with the kind of humor injected in with Deadpool and the kind of opportunities that it you know uh, affords, I think this is a very fun and creative idea. And certainly getting Fred Savage on board with that for that callback is is a fun thing. <laughs> That's hilarious and a good way to get kids out to Deadpool, I guess, before Christmas. 
Yeah. Like, I mean, I think it's the things that there's been a lot of discussion with, you know, Deadpool being R-rated and whatnot, and if it was going to change the PG-13 with, like, the Fox or the Disney buyout. But, I mean, that doesn't seem to be what the case is here. It does seem like a, you know, we have this kind of in to re-release the film in a way that can appeal to its true audience, because it's really 13-year-olds who are watching Deadpool movies. Yeah. But, you know, but but framed in a fun way. Like, it's not it's not entirely soulless. I think it's an interesting and fun way of doing it. And Ryan Reynolds certainly has the time of his life with this character. He's finally getting to do his thing in full. Yeah, I don't I don't love the Deadpool movies myself, but I'm glad they're there because I see their usefulness. Yeah, and I think it's just that, you know, this is essentially what, what Ryan Reynolds is really good at. He's essentially been playing Deadpool his entire life. He's <laughs> yes. just now getting the time to do it properly. Absolutely. All right, but that was fun. Definitely check out the trailer after this, Calvin, because yeah. it's it's a trip. <laughs> yeah, will do. At number 10, we have Green Book. Which, uh, the more I read up on it, the less it seems like it's accurate to the actual guy's story. You know, there there was a good uh, jazz musician living above Carnegie Hall. He was driven by a white guy. His family put out a statement. Maybe they were never friends. Um, we don't know whether this Oscar bait is really... Uh, you know, an authentic story for the black male experience. Uh, mm-hmm. It's an interesting kind of uh, dynamic, certainly a lot of uh, racial politics going on, and, you know, very much so having the same kind of conversations we're having today out in the real world. Well, the family of the driver came out, and they're like, this was our dad's experience, and then the family of the black guy is like, a, our, you know, our dad ate fried chicken before he met a white man. You don't have to, you know... They're is, selling that, is that something that's things. in the movie? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, it's, oh, I mean, it's a... more tasteful in the movie. It's like a... When you say that, you when must... you say that, though, it definitely doesn't sound tasteful. <laughs> I know, the way I'm presenting it, but the way he's like a... Well, he's a pretty ignorant guy, you know? He just lived uh, within his Italian community his whole life and pretty sheltered from racial politics. So he says, oh, you must have tried the fried chicken, and, you know, the guy is so, uh, so stately and reserved he doesn't want to eat it with his hands and there's like a whole bit about it it's it's pretty funny but but apparently not true so that takes away any value it had Mm -hmm. when you describe it it sounds less uh innocent than you know it it, it apparently was like that that sounds very like i don't know i'd almost expect to see that in a kind of farcical film yeah like, like this revelation that a, a black man hasn't tried fried chicken or something that that seems taste tasteless but yeah there, there are <laughs> oh. a few parts of it that are questionable but i think it's going to i'm i'm a little bit confused whether it's going to get oscar acclaim or any kind of acclaim after uh, its initial run here all right i mean from my personal viewpoint there hasn't been a whole lot of buzz about the film in general so i doubt especially with all the other competition going on this year that it's going to get really any attention it's another one of those films that's you know, vying for it, but it's it's just going to fall. Okay, maybe surprised. We'll find out yeah. later. More films that aren't going to get Oscar recognition. Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald. <laughs> Which I don't think we need to give any recognition either. Yep, moving on. Uh, at number eight, Instant Family. Instant mm-hmm. dropping that one, moving on. Yeah. <laughs> number seven, we have Bohemian Rhapsody. Which uh, I like. Um, it's going to be in here forever, so we don't need to spend a lot more time on it. I'll be here in 20 years talking about it. <laughs> at number three, we have Creed 2. We're at number six, uh, Creed 2. Oh, damn it, did I say still, three? Still a good movie. <laughs> it's still a good follow-up to Creed. Uh, 
I don't think it has anything as powerful as the first Creed in it. There's a few good fights and uh, good emotional character development. It's fine. So at number five, we have uh, another new entry here, Mortal Engines. Which, you know, premiering at five should be a good thing, but the way movies are made, it's it's projected to lose about $100 million at box office. Yeah, it's... um. Kind of, I think they've plugged a lot of money into this production and the advertising. And from what I understand, this is another in the wave of, um, like, kind of teen films or whatever going on. You know, these kind of Hunger Games-ish, Maze Runner-y films. I think that's what this is. I think this is a proof that, first, the YA boom is over. And secondly, having something like the filmmakers from Lord of Rings doesn't mean anything necessarily to young audiences like, Maybe that generation's past, and, you know, maybe children are uh, still watching those films, or it doesn't have the name recognition it once did. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think I definitely agree that the YA kind of boom is done. We've moved on from that. You know, it's very much so entirely kind of the superhero time now. And Peter Jackson has a much more interesting project at the end of the month. Yeah, They Shall Not Grow Old, it's called, where he's uh, restored a bunch of World War One footage with color and had voice actors come in and, and sound. It's for the celebration of the, um, you know, 100 years at the end of the World War One. It looks really fantastic. You know, I've heard some mixed things as far as the actual content, but regardless, it's a technical achievement and another, you know, feather in Peter Jackson's cap. Important thing for movies to have anyway, so I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Uh, number four and three, we're going through the animated films again. Ralph Breaks the Internet and Dr. Seuss is the Grinch. I'm glad we're pairing them together so we can move on, but we will have a review of uh, Dr. Seuss is the Grinch on Christmas Day. Yeah, just, just a little Christmas treat, something to read while you're opening presents, I guess. You know, it's nothing b- big, but certainly it's, you know, uh, a good companion to the, to the holiday. <laughs> That's my Grinch move for the year, to release a mediocre review of a holiday film <laughs> on christmas day all right thankfully our next two up top here you know are brand new things more exciting things to talk about i'm actually surprised at number two uh clint eastwood's latest film the mule is way high up there in the box office i'm very happy about that i think it i think it shows that there was there was a little tension coming into this film that it would be like a kind of right-wing um propaganda piece for his perspective but i didn't feel that it was exactly that way i felt that it has enough um fluency with culture and uh you know his first line when he comes in is uh shouldn't you guys be going back over the border he says to his uh mexican helpers and you think oh that's the film it's going to be but it takes interesting turns Oh, that's good, at least. Um, you know, it definitely, especially with his later films, it seems like Eastwood is more politically motivated than a lot else going on. That certainly was the case with his last film, which bombed horribly, right? 1570 to Paris. Yeah, I saw that on opening day also. I'm a huge Clint Eastwood fan. I guess we should establish that. That I, I'll go to whatever he makes opening day anyway. It hardly matters. Um, mm-hmm. the, the Paris film... It had one of the best shots of the year, one of the best scenes when, you know, these real-life heroes are reenacting, like, their one moment of triumph. But you have to remember, it was just a moment. Like, the rest of their lives wasn't as interesting, and he kind of takes them on, like, a tour of Europe. It's it's not that fun once they get to that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I 
I guess we're going on with the mule. Like, what else did you like about it? I'm interested to know. I don't know nearly as much about this one going in other than, like, the general premise from the trailer. And I guess, like, between the mule and Green Book, I'm giving you, like, their most racist moments just as, like, their <laughs> primary examples instead of, like, the heart of what the films are. But uh, mm-hmm. I guess Eastwood's character, he drives for the cartel. Um, his He's always ignored family. He's always worked too much as a father. So um, when... When he starts realizing that he can't keep operating his farm, he needs to drive for the cartel and make a little bit of money, and he's able to support like his local watering hole that he really loves, and uh, he keeps getting new reasons to get drawn back in. You know, he upgrades his old truck, and uh, it, it is true the media buzz going around on it. Uh, Eastwood does have two threesomes in the film. What? Yeah, yeah. What? There's a setup where. In one, he's just, like, hanging out with women, but the second one in Mexico is very erotic and very out of place in an Eastwood film. That's so... No, I don't want to see that. That man's a skeleton. No, I mean, I he's just laying there with his shirt off. But, you know, it, it focuses on the women. You really are giving me the worst the details. Gaze thing, but it's just inexplicable that it would be in there at all, because this is such a story of compassion and uh, coming back to your family and... Uh, I think it. I think it works well. He spends a lot of time in his truck. Uh, you know, if you want to go watch Eastwood sing like a, you know, good old traveling songs and go through the heartland of America, it's kind of like a diners, drive-ins, and dives episode with Clint Eastwood. <laughs> well, that sounds a little bit more appealing, but yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, well, I believe you'll actually have a review for the Mule later on this week for us on yeah. the site, right? Yeah. It should be shouldn't it should be up by the time this podcast is up if all goes according to plan. Well, that that'll be good then. So you'll have that to read as well to hear Calvin's more thorough thoughts on the various uh, orgies that Eastwood has in his films. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> all right, and at number one this week, uh, a very nice um, you know surprise here is we have the latest uh, Spider-Man film, the animated Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. Yeah, um, there's a lot of Spider-Man lately. Um, we got the new film, what was it, just last year, then we got the video game this summer, and then we have another one in a few months. Yeah, lots of Spider-Man. And that's the thing is that, you know, Spider-Man is such a universally beloved character. Everyone's loved Spider-Man since the, the 50s and 60s. You know, he's been Marvel's number one guy. And I feel like this is new invention, too. Like, there could be fatigue right now with Spider-Man because there's so much, but this looks completely different from anything else that we have. Like, uh, I haven't seen the film yet, but I saw the ending clip of Venom where we get, you know, about six-minute cut of the film. Oh, that's cool that they gave you that little tease anyway. Yeah, I mean, just based on the trailers alone, the film looks visually phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. I know I went to a theater with my fiance and I had never mentioned anything and she just turned to me after the preview and was like, this looks exactly like the film that you would love. So I kind of feel that way too. It looks subversive and new and I love the idea of having like a noir Spider-Man. That sounds fun to me. Uh, noir Spider-Man voiced by Nicolas Cage at that. Like, yeah. <laughs> what could go wrong? 
I mean, that sounds great. I'm I'm very excited to see the film. I can't wait to see it. I gotta wait till my fiance's got some time off of work to go check it out. But yeah. I've heard nothing but significant praise for the film. And I like that their version of Peter Parker is a little bit washed up. Like we never got Spider Man as an adult. Like we got the Tommy McGuire and Andrew Garfield, you know, the awkward mm-hmm. teenage phases and he's always been a mess. But what happens when that mess develops into a man? That's why I'm interested. I wonder. I would have loved. I mean, wouldn't you thought it have been interesting if they had cast Tobey Maguire as the voice of Adult <sighs> Spider-Man? Yeah, I bet. I bet they kind of played with that, but I think it might have been a step back, don't you? Yeah, I mean, it could have potentially like you know just too much winking at the audience, but I don't know. It would have been a nice thing. Tobey's still, in my eyes, been the best Spider-Man, you know. So and I miss him. <laughs> I'm I'm kind of surprised it got all the way to the top. I mean, look at its competition this week, but next week we'll have Aquaman, and we'll have a review for that up on the site right now, too, so that's worth looking at, uh, whether that, uh, you know, it's worth looking at Spider-Man instead of that next week. Yeah, uh, at least from your perspective, you saw Aquaman already, yeah? Yeah, yeah, I didn't, I didn't love it. Uh, there's a... Um, I guess we should talk a little bit about Aquaman. Um, just, a, just a little bit. We don't want to spoil too much. Okay, yeah. Well, it's visually stunning. You know, it has like a bioluminescent like splendor to it. Like, it's gorgeous going underwater, and there aren't very many films where they figured out how to shoot live action underwater. So, you know, our director, James Wan from the Saw series, he's trying to work out like new ways to do something, and I think he does a serviceable job, but... There's, like, three different Aquaman films in this one film. Mm-hmm. That seems to happen a lot. Like, that was a lot of the same problem with uh, Batman v Superman as well, yeah. But there's yeah. more like five or ten films <laughs> in one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, that film famously has a very good ending, but, you know, all of the component parts are just adding up to too much for DC. Like, uh, they're, they must be looking at what Mar- Marvel's doing, and it's so many films, but they try to combine it all into one each time, it seems like. Mm-hmm. Whereas on the other hand, I think this year is really proving that Sony is really going to take off with their Spider-Man material here, both between Into the Spider-Verse and Venom. They've got enough success to run with Spider-Man for a long, long time. Yeah, do you think Marvel's ever getting that back? <laughs> it's. I mean, it looks like they still have the rights to work with Tom Holland Spider-Man. I don't know how long they'll have him for there. Mm-hmm. You know, they've at least got the upcoming one, which I'm interested in, because Mysterio is one of my favorite spider-man villains i guess i should say as well is that like of all the marvel superheroes spider-man has always been my favorite yeah and you know this like this next four i have to go to just to see the final moments of stan lee right yeah i think the the next couple marvel films that are coming out the marvel cinematic universe films you know what we got the three this coming year captain marvel endgame and um spider-man far from home yeah they're all interest me in some way or another at least to keep me going just for this next year, but I don't know. Something else crazy would have to be announced or alluded to to kind of keep me interested after that. Yeah, I think I think it all depends on Captain Marvel. If that's the basis for their continued universe, then uh, that has to be a real strong performance. We'll see if uh, we'll see if that could take off. I have I have some doubts about it, but I'm happy to be proven wrong. Brie Larson's performances, at least in the trailers that we've seen so far, haven't seemed too enticing. But oh. I think the the crux of my interest in the film is the um, I don't know the general plot and how that's going to work into Endgame. Uh, and we'll see Brie Larson, I always thought, well, she's good in like a room or whatever, but I never thought she was like a you know a big screen actress. I I I think she's fine at home. I think there are mm-hmm. actors that are bigger. Uh, 
that have bigger presences than her. And I think her holding the whole universe together is a risky move. Yeah. So we'll see how it goes. I mean, I think she did pretty well in uh, what Scott Pilgrim versus the World. That was a comic adaptation, but she it was a very small part. Yeah. Her leading a whole big franchise film like this, who knows how that'll go. We'll Good. see. I hope well. We'll see. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess now is as good a time as any to move on to our featured film of the week. Throw some sleigh bells here in post, Calvin, because we're talking about a Christmas movie. Actually, I really like those sequined shirts. Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Um. <laughs> All right, the film of the week here is Die Hard. God, I love this film, Calvin. I, I do told you that as well. <laughs> yeah, uh, we should say that we both watched it together before this uh, podcast. Yeah. Uh, sometimes we watch films together, you know, when we're about to podcast something. Sometimes we don't have the time, have to watch stuff on our own. But we like to watch stuff together. And this one, we definitely just, we managed to find the time and worked out. And it was a blast watching it together again. Yeah. I think it is one of those films that you do just want to watch with a buddy because it's so much fun. And there's so many moments where you're like, oh, man, I really want to share this with someone. It's so it's so cool what's happening. Yeah. Well, and, and that's why I, you know, firmly state again that this totally feels like a Christmas movie. This is something you put on when you got the the fire cranked up, it's chilling outside, you get all the family together and you watch John McClane shoot the fuck out of some people. I mean, yeah, it's it's a perfect Christmas movie and people debate that, but there's no debate. It is the final we have the final say. It's the Christmas movie. Yes, our opinion is the only one that matters, especially here on this podcast. Die Hard is a Christmas movie. You know, detractors can eat it. Yeah, I mean, maybe isolated only to this podcast, but, but it's true. Um, I feel like the, well, I watched the director's commentary, like about half of it before we ran the film. And the the director, uh, John McTiernan's opening uh, statement is, I wanted to make a film with joy because you're making a film about terrorists and you don't want to, um, you don't want to make the audience sad or make it feel like it's a hard thing to kill these guys. So he wanted Christmas to be like a basis and like a, you know, it's almost like a calling card for the film. When it gets too heavy, he finds the perfect moment to elevate it with some comedy. Yeah, I agree. I think that's one thing I definitely notice more so on this watch. And like any good, uh, I think, heavy drama or whatever like this, we talked a little bit about this idea in Barry Lyndon last week, is that you kind of have that kind of the, that comic relief, the interludes of moments where you kind of can pull the tension back just a little bit and, you know, let the audience breathe so that you can turn it back up again. Yeah, I think he's so good at that. He's so good at pitching a scene and finding um, one thing I noticed notice more every single time I watch it is it has a perfect um, fluency about uh, setting up and paying off every moment of the film. Mm-hmm. You know, those kind of films are some of my favorite where they, you know, plant ideas subtly in the background of stuff or they just kind of offhand mention things and it's all going to come back in some way or another. And you don't even think about it. Even the most 
mundane or uninteresting of things are all going to come back to play a significant role in the plot. <laughs> I mean, it's the littlest thing, right? Like, he, it's it's him saying, you know, make, make a fist with your toes. It, it's weird because usually action stars aren't barefoot. And it's the... It's like the bear that he carries around at the airport, and then it's, uh, it accompanies his driver for the rest of the film. Yeah, I think the the fist with your toes one is a more interesting one to discuss as well, because it's intentionally set up in the very first moment of the film. Already, we're establishing obstacles for McLean to have to come over. You know, the barefoot is uh, thing is not just like an aesthetic choice; it's entirely intentional on the filmmaker's part to make this even more challenging for John. And they reinforce that throughout as well. Like, you know, they don't just do it offhand. Like, every terrorist he kills, he, he like, checks on their shoes. There's one line he says, he's like, you know, there's, like, five million terrorists in the world, and, you know, the one I kill has to have feet smaller than my sister's. <laughs> yeah, and I think that, uh, I think it's pretty cool because it wasn't an era of vulnerable heroes. We're looking at, like, the Schwarzenegger era, and, you know, John McClane, he's a he's a vulnerable guy. He's just a dad who's struggling with his relationship, but he's you know, uh, every time I listen to other podcasts, like I listen to NPR, they're like, uh, you know, Bruce Willis has a total dad bod, and I'm like, man, I got to get back into shape. <laughs> yeah, especially if you want to look like uh, Bruce Willis, I think, you know, m- maybe not the peak male condition, but right. you know, yeah. at least the. the peak achievable male condition right yeah but, he he is like the achievable like peak of what a dad could be but i'm just calling npr out right now because that's some bullshit <laughs> but yeah i mean um john mcclain really is like the dictionary definition of an everyman in this film and bruce willis's role as such in this in die hard really changed the action game for everyone liam neeson wouldn't be an old man kicking people's ass if you know bruce willis hadn't stepped into this role first and kind of redefined it because as you said it was the age of schwarzenegger and van damme and uh, stallone in the 80s you know john mctiernan had just a year prior directed predator with schwarzenegger which was all about let's get the most jack dudes we can out in the jungle to shoot things did you see this week uh, Liam Neeson's Cold Pursuit finally got a poster? Um, yeah, I think I saw that uh, recently. <laughs> it's just an, another Liam Neeson action vehicle, number 22 or whatever. Yeah, they're becoming self-aware, and I feel like Die Hard is the formula for every action movie in the 90s, especially. But Oh, some... yeah. If you, if, if you think about it, you could literally take most action films from the 90s and just say Die Hard with blank, like even, you know, Jan de Bont, the cinematographer for Die Hard, went ahead and took a lot of what he learned from there and made Speed, which yeah. is often referred to as Die Hard with a bus. Yeah. There's something like a Phone Booth with Colin Farrell, which is Die Hard in a phone booth. Like any any action film contained within you know a you know singular location is usually Die Hard esque. Like we could mm-hmm. also almost make that a term on its own. <laughs> then you have stuff like Skyscraper, which is like Die Hard in a building. So die hard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I, I think it is like that, um, that transmutable that it is um, such a significant cornerstone of the action film that it did set the tone for all of the 90s and what would come. Like we didn't need the 80s with all these um, masculine, uh, highly uh, t- testosterone driven guys because we wanted real people now. Mm-hmm. Things definitely were changing, and I think that's notable at the the time Die Hard came in. Like, if you think about if Die Hard probably came out five years earlier in 83, per se, instead, 
probably wouldn't have done as well because, you know, everyone was still riding that, you know, fantasy, you know, vehicle essentially there where they wanted the toughest, biggest guys they could get. Whereas at the end of the 80s, we were definitely transitioning more into a realistic uh, time frame. Yeah. Um, and I'm trying to think if there was potentially a political correlation with that. Like if something changed in our mindsets in America to make us desire something more achievable. Yeah, we're looking at 1988, by the way. We should set it up. It was a completely different time um, than what we're dealing with now. I can't think of a direct correlation. Uh, I'm sure there is one. All I can think is that this was very much of the age of uh, Ronald Reagan and a lot of that going on. So I think that potential, uh, I think you can read a lot of that kind of uh, conservative subtext in the film in some ways. Not an inherently negative or, you know, uh, derogatory sense in any manner, but I think that that kind of uh, wish fulfillment, you know, masculine nature to the film is definitely written all over the walls. This was a summer blockbuster, yeah, yeah. which feels odd because it's so, you know, emphatically Christmas. It's It feels like Christmas throughout. Yeah. You know, they have constant <laughs> reminders with the, with the decorations and the music. There's a lot of really great usage of Christmas music throughout. I think I pointed out when we were uh, watching that, that when they had that moment when the safe opens up and like Ode to Joy just comes on like it's a clockwork orange and we're associating it with <laughs> malice and evil and it's, it's a really good juxtaposition I think. It is the most Kubrick moment of the film and the, the screen starts washing with like the blue and the blue light of the safe with the red alarms and it kind of overcomes with the Christmassy feeling. I think mm-hmm. uh, I think it's worth saying also of the time that it was being released, Bruce Willis was just working on Moonlighting. He wasn't a yeah. huge star yet. No, he was working on this TV show as a detective. It was a, basically kind of like a comedy detective show, show with Sybil uh, Shepherd. Yeah. Which... Uh, when I was going through a huge Bruce Willis phase in my teens, I watched a lot of Moonlighting, and I really enjoyed it. Oh, did you? Anyone... Yeah, I did. I enjoyed Moonlighting quite a lot. Um, but I, didn't, I never got to finish it because, uh, you know, it was very difficult to find online. But anyway, Moonlighting was enjoyable, but it, you know, it definitely was kind of the gateway into Bruce Willis getting these kind of action-oriented roles because there were a lot of kind of set pieces moments throughout the show, and it really proved that he would be capable of doing the various kind of stunts needed in Die Hard. And it, there was a weird thing about it that, you know, throughout shooting Die Hard, he was still on set of Moonlighting, so it it led them to lean into some of the um, side characters within Die Hard and give them a little bit screen more screen presence so they could uh, fit the su- shooting schedule around Moonlighting. Mm-hmm. I think that's another strong thing to point out about Die Hard is that there is a great cast of bit characters throughout here. Every character has their own kind of different personality and purpose. They're all executed like perfectly well. I guess we should start with Holly because she's one of the initial ones. Who who I only just realized like Holly, oh that's, you know, Christmassy name. Again, another reminder, Die Hard is a Christmas movie. It I think it definitively is. You can't you know, you can you could find whatever you want in it, but it's it's a Christmas movie. Um, who else do we have on the cast here? We have Al, the cop. He's uh, he's fantastic. He, yeah, he actually does a lot of uh, cop roles. I don't know if you uh, recognize him as well. Um, Reginald Val Johnson. Yeah. He's not only the cop here, but he's the cop at the jail in Ghostbusters. Yeah. And he plays a cop on the long-running sitcom Family Matters, where he butts head with Steve Urkel all the time. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, is that a? That's the origin of that meme, right? Carl on duty. Mm-hmm. I think so. 
<laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I really liked. Uh, yeah, I really like him in it though. He's such a personable, funny guy, and uh, I think uh, it, it does have those characters where they have their identifiable quirks, like the guy who wants to eat the crunch bar. Uh, that's a that's a very funny like comedic moment. There, the terrorists are getting ready for the police to try and enter their way in, and you know the the one. By the way, I want to point out that this is an Asian guy in a band of Germans. Nobody acknowledges this throughout the film. Yeah. We're just cool with that. Like, yeah. I don't think... I think only the blonde guys were probably the only German people in the cast. But anyway. Right. <laughs> and and so he's preparing. He's, like, kind of out of behind the bar. And he kind of just, like, reaches in and grabs the crunch bar from behind. <laughs> just to snack on it. It's another great moment of, you know, a sense of comedy that's throughout the film. It is. And it always stands out in my mind. I always remember that moment. Yeah, I, it's just perfect the way he like sets down, looks at the snack bar. You see it highlighted in the frame first, but then you know people mm-hmm. go for what their intentions will be. Like uh, even Bruce Willis has a lot of funny moments that are just like I just love the moment where he just taps the poster on the wall. He's like, "Oh, girls," you know. Yeah, well, he, like he he passes by and taps it. Like I, I think that's when he's being chased at that like right. that point or whatnot, <laughs> and he taps it almost like as a relief, like he knows where he's at, and he you know he's like the the girls are looking out for him or something. Yeah, it, there's a lot of funny moments that just seem to be improvised. Like people have their almost like their token, like like his identity is being like a shoeless, vulnerable uh, New York cop, and then people have like their cocaine or you know their yeah the co. So that's another really great character bit from uh, his, his character's name is Ellis. Mm-hmm. And so he's he's this kind of macho, almost Wall Streety kind of guy who's absolutely cocky and overconfident. And like there's just those those little bits of character that he interjects into it. If I remember right, the bit where he, he gets caught like coming in the office, like like they're coming in to see Holly's office and you know, he gets caught and he's like trying to rub his nose, he's like <laughs> And he's like like sniffing all and trying to uncover cover it up, and that was improvised, from what I understand. It, I mean, he he plays it so he plays it off so well too. All of his movements and exaggerations are you know perfectly like in line with someone that's going a little bit overboard on stimulants. Mm-hmm. He he definitely feels like that kind of caricature of those things, and he's hilarious to watch and just entirely full of himself. It makes for a very good character. I mean, the cast is so full of these guys, too, that they have a, you know, a real, like, diversity of, like, representation there, and uh, and a feeling yeah, that get... they have, like, lives within lives, where they're all, um, you know, they're all outliving uh, some different reality than, you know, this building, uh, what's happening there. Right. If you let me just go ahead and blast through some of these other couple guys, because there's so many to yeah. go over. There's, like, um, Theo. He's a really good character. He's the, the kind of hacker who gets them in. He's got this kind of joyous personality throughout and very playful and fun. They And then you've got Carl, who's, like, the main, the second German, you know, guy there who's kind of breaking in. He's got this, this kind of rage going on. He's more like the Schwarzenegger type, where he's very, you know, physically... Uh, you know, built and like and driven. There's characters like Argyle, who's a limo driver. He's a lot of fun. He's got this joyous, fun personality always playing. I, I love seeing him in the background of <laughs> shots where he's hanging out. Like there's the scene where um, Powell's car goes over the edge, and, you know, and you could see it through the back window of the vehicle. And, you know, he's just still there jamming out. Uh, Argyle yeah. is. And, and it's fun. I think you get to see a lot of. Uh a lot of how characters relate to each other. They have good context for their relationships. Like, uh, 
you know the way Carl works within his uh, within his gang, or the way that uh, Bruce Willis interacts with anyone says a lot about who they are. Yeah, I guess just a couple more to go over as well, just real quick. There's Thornburg, the heinous journalist, you know, who you love to hate, who's also in Ghostbusters. Mm-hmm. That's another, you know, he just is really great at playing those kind of roles. Then there's like a uh, uh, deputy chief, Dwayne Robinson, who's just an asshole the whole time and is there essentially to. Um, you know, get in the way of McLean and just try and be contradictory. And it's funny. It's funny to yeah. watch him. I think those are the more humorous moments watching him fall on his face. But yeah, I guess absolutely. we still we still need to talk about the most important, you know, character in all the whole film. And that of course would be Hans Gruber. Yeah, I mean Alan Rickman here is sensational. It's uh, it's one of the most impressive screen debuts. I I can't think of anything better than that. Yeah, I mean, let's uh, you know make note here that he was 30 when he started in this film. That's, that's a very late time to start acting. He was a stage actor before starring in Die Hard, and he just so naturally fits into this role. Like we said, you know, earlier with like uh, you know what both Theo and um, Crunch Bar guy. I mean, they're not German, but there's supposedly everyone is supposed to be German in this band. But Alan Rickman is decidedly not. But you don't even really notice or care about it because he's just so charismatic as this villainous role. He really is one of the the best screen villains we've ever seen. And his accent is so much fun that I think it is just fun to watch him on screen. I think he just explodes. Like he explodes mm-hmm. with the kind of charisma and uh, and kind of a menace. I mean, a guy named Hans Gruber was never going to be any good anyway. So you know, this guy just. He elevates everything he's in. Right. I think there's still that kind of left off of the kind of World War II things where we still want to make Germans the enemy of everything. Yeah. But, I mean, he does a fantastic job of it here. And even though their their motivation isn't, like, politically or any way, like, I, I guess that is a good thing to point out as well, is that the idea of posing as terrorists, a significantly worse crime than what you're ending up doing, which is just a plain robbery, I mean, that's not a good plan, but... It seems to work still, and that's all that's important. Like, it seems like a better plan, and it seems like a good veil, if they can get away with it. Yeah, I mean, it gives them a higher-risk target to that they uh, believe they're following, so it is kind of an ingenious thing, and Alan Rickman really plays into that character. Um, mm-hmm. He he sets himself up as this very great kind of intellectual in his first moments. You know, he has these he's these big speeches about things he, he draws from, like, these classical educations you know as he says and he's get, makes comments about the suits and everything going on so he seems very well to do and capable and then you know it's just uh this kind of working class guy ends up getting in his way and messing everything up i think that's an interesting dynamic he got going there as well yeah it is a interesting dynamic and i think that's part of it because he's so capable he's able to seem the most villainous and one of our favorite uh villains in film Mm-hmm. He's just really enjoyable to watch, and I think, again, it really comes down to Rickman's acting. We should also, I think, take a, a moment to highlight the really fantastic acting going on and what is potentially the best scene of the film where he's caught on the rooftop by John, mm-hmm. and immediately his instinct is to fake like he is another hostage. And he throws on this kind of fakish American accent. That still sounds like Alan Rickman, but definitely not like he has been sounding the whole film. And you think he's potentially pulling the wool over John's eyes. Yeah, he's so good and so believable. You really buy into the tension of that moment. 
Mm-hmm. I think that's a it's a really fantastic moment, and yeah, then that's the thing is that it's that very much that kind of Hitchcockian sense of giving the audience the information that we know that it's actually you know uh, Alan Rickman and Hans Gruber specifically, <laughs> and yeah. he's you know tricking John. It seems like so when John hands him a gun, it's like oh God no, what's you know he's going to turn against him. We we think that, but then we get you know the rug pulled out from under us, and we find out that John's already two steps ahead. And there's no bullets in the gun. And that's it's a great moment. And it's kind of another example of the many great moments throughout the film where it's essentially John is up against this impossible task, but through his own, you know, kind of prowess and clever, you know, workarounds, he's able to slowly build his way up to the finale. And it's fun, right? You get to see their interplay and to finally have them, like, facing off in a way after all their exchange on the radio, you know. There's a lot of indirect um, character work done in Die Hard, but when you see such a cast of great characters, and then Alan Rickman's just on this other level of theater, uh, he elevates everything that he's in. Mm-hmm. I think that's an interesting, because they kind of bring up that comparison as well, is that Alan Rickman's character is a much more kind of theatrical, you know, uh, theatrically acted character you know very much so in line with Rickman's background as a theater actor whereas you know Bruce Willis is carrying uh playing this very much so this kind of typical macho cowboyish kind of character as he's compared to in the film you know there's that that famous moment leading up to the yippie Kaye where he's compared to like John Wayne and Rambo and Marshall Dillon and it's very much so the kind of character that he's aiming to portray as well and in, then, <laughs> uh, then it, it says doubly about him that he's like well i prefer roy rogers right like that that Mm -hmm. says a lot about who he is as a person i think it's always interesting i've always wondered if he's like kind of toying with him and being contradictory by saying roy rogers or if his character really is a big fan of roy rogers if so i mean i'd find that very humorous i think i think it makes sense though for like this low class guy like he like he probably doesn't like have a lot of culture or education about what the movies are about so that would be like what someone who hasn't like studied film would say, right? Mm-hmm. Roy Rogers. I really like those sequins shirts. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, what's to love? Um I think there's a there's a feeling about Rickman's performance that it is performative what he's doing. Like the cop showing up is a big game to him. Everything is an expectation that he's already planned for, so He's so cool and calm compared to, you know, uh, John's demeanor that he's living on, like, the edge of a disaster at the moment. I think that's another really important thing in Willis's portrayal of the whole thing is that everything is very frantic. You know, it's panicked because he's very much so, and you feel it, that he's stuck in the situation that just seems impossible to deal with when he's first escaping and kind of goes up north from the terrorist and he's just kind of freaking out like making sure to cover his back he seems so paranoid of everything going on and it really puts you in his mindset which goes even further into his character to show how different he is from the other various action heroes of both the period you know in the 80s as well as even through to today which we're not seeing as much of is that he is a very you know, vulnerable character physically. John <laughs> endures so much, you know, throughout this whole uh, trial of getting to the end of the film. By the end, he is beaten and battered and looking like, you know, he's on the edge of death. I love that in film when it's a continuation and you have you have context for the characters, what they've gone through. It's something that's only just like finally come to video games. Like you want You want like a character progression that stays with you. 
and a feeling that a character's grown or changed throughout a story. Something about him, mm-hmm. like, becoming more bloody, losing his shirt, showing his scars, you feel like, oh, man, this guy's been through a hell of a night. Right, well, and you can see all the times he takes various damage. I love, you know, they take that moment to really show you just how fucked up, like, his, his feet get, you know, where he's pulling glass out yeah. of them. Like, they emphasize that and how much pain this guy's enduring. And that's when he gives that really great speech to Powell as well about his his real character arc through the film. You know, and he's talking about how much he's messed up with his wife, uh, you know, with wife, with his Holly and everything. Now he's trying to fix things. Yeah, I mean, it's not really a film about a terrorist attack the way that, like, Jaws isn't about a shark, right? Like, it's it's about family and what's happened with his relationship, in a way. I think that's a very easy thing to look over in the film. And also the thing that really reinforces why this is a kind of christmas film as well as just a, a it elevates it above being just another action film as well is that there is a you know thematic core to the film that is being driven from even before the terrorists are introduced is that there is a marital struggle going on here like you said the film is very much so about family and that is very you know much so very typical of christmas films yeah i think it <laughs> it is funny because it follows all the typical beats of like a family and um, you know family around for the holidays film except the only difference is you have, like, terrorists in the building. Yeah, like, you could take John's conflict of coming home from the holidays and their, you know, estranged relationship, trying to repair things, and put that in the context of a family meetup for Christmas. Or if he's just visiting her at the party, like, you could still see how this story and how this character arc is supposed to develop over any other different scenario that they're in. It just happens that a terrorist operation is what is pushing them to this eventual conclusion. Instant family in theaters now. <laughs> what I what I really like though is again there's just this significantly great setup and payoff early on you know on the film that comes up and it even comes through uh, symbolically early on what's set up is the um, you know Ellis is you know in the room with them when John and Holly are meeting up again for the first time and he tells her to show him the watch mm. this watch that she's gotten for doing so well it's a Christmas present from the office to her for doing so well. This watch effectively symbolizes the, you know, prioritization she's taken of work over family, you know. I mean, that's the whole film, right? Like, that's what everything's about with Christmas, too, is you feel like you're going to work so hard. Like, uh, I feel like I could work harder every year, get my daughter a better Christmas. But really, you know, the thing is presence. And this is like a film about dealing with the consequence of not being present. Presence with a C, yeah. not with a T at the end. <laughs> we got to clarify right. that there. But but yes, I think what they, they do a really good job of establishing how dysfunctional this relationship is. You know, when he walks into the, uh, when John walks into the building to look for her on the whichever floor, she's listed under her maiden name, not her actual last name of, you know, McLean. And that starts a whole feud and everything. They have very interesting chemistry. They They act like a couple that's going through something. Yeah, it's nice because they have a very, you know, enthusiastic and heartwarming meetup at first, but then it kind of devolves into the argument, which is very typical to happen, you know, I can say certainly from my end. Yeah, I mean, the way that he, like, squares up with himself in the mirror, you could see the, you could see, like, heartache in the character. It doesn't start with, this is a tough guy going into an action film. Like, this is a, this is a broken man from his marriage going into a horrible situation where he has to rise to a bigger occasion which is how we all kind of feel on christmas i think 
Well, I think it's nice as well is that he feels responsible in some way for kind of things. Like he's beating himself up in the mirror because he realized he said something stupid that he shouldn't yeah. have. You know, it's not that it's her fault that the relationship is falling apart. It's definitely a, you know, equal parts thing. That they're both, you know, not helping the situation but here. I think the, the film has so much nuance that way. I guess we should talk a little bit about how the script, um, how nicely written it is. Yeah, uh, that's the thing is that, you know, as well as the direction here, the script is really pitch perfect. It's very taut. It's very calculated out in how each set piece kind of progresses things forward. You know, there's an objective in each bit. You know, John gets each piece of the puzzle until he slowly kind of works his way back up. You know, he starts by when he kills the first terrorist, he gets his radio. And then when he kills the next guy, he gets the C4. And from there on, it's almost like he's collecting things. Like You could imagine Die Hard as a kind of uh, story-style video game if you really wanted. Yeah, it does have the uh, video game setup where it is an excuse for an action. Although we say it's a Christmas film, that's you know that's not all that it is. It has a lot of uh, nuance and ability to also be a really taut, efficient action film. If not the most taut and efficient action film. Yeah, I mean, I think we both are... I think we both agree it's pretty close. I mean, to me, Die Hard is just perfect, especially from like a, a structural standpoint. It's you know has an objective, it has a certain amount of information, and it reveals it you know correctly each part of the way along along there. Just from looking at it, like as an objective standpoint, there are no flaws in Die Hard. The building is so ingenious the way that it's used. Like you say, it's video gamey in that he's like progressing through items, but also he's literally progressing through levels like he's leveling through a building you know it's it's very interesting how that's structured one of the great things as well that they do is that they have a profound sense of geography in the film this isn't something that gets talked about too much but scenes are set up extremely well so that you know where everything is um you know i noticed on this viewing when john first walks in and you know we see him playing with the machine to figure out things and he Mm -hmm. goes they set up the entrance area they set up the two guards and the elevator all before the terrorists are even introduced which are the obstacles they then have to overcome to get into the building it treats the building as though it's a main character so everything that is crucial about it is shown and there's really no wasted piece like we we understand where he's at and how he got there and why he's there for every segment Mm -hmm. within the building it's all very well thought out and everything kind of comes back into play in one way or another like we said it's all a lot of great setup and payoff both in a physical sense within the scenes and within the actual thematic purposes of the story as well and i think it all just kind of collates into like one of the most well put together action films and well considered there's there's nobody that's weak in the film there's no weak element at all I can't think of any, for sure. Yeah. Um, You know, and not to mention that the climax of the film itself is also a very significant and memorable and iconic one. The whole uh, setup you get there is that once, you know, John's finally getting up to the top of the the building here where everything's kind of going down, he's beaten and battered, he's almost dead, and he's got two bullets left, and that's it. And they show you that in his hand. And so from there, they don't reveal the next bit, though, because they want it to be a surprise. But the the genius execution of that is, you know, it shows, again, John's resourcefulness. He walks in with the machine gun, and but, but it's not loaded, as we find out, because he put the two bullets into a gun that's taped onto his back with Christmas tape. Yeah. Again, <laughs> Die Hard is a Christmas movie. <laughs> it is. 
Yeah, it's fantastic it, how it all comes together, and that you get. It is so important you get payoffs for everything because nothing could feel cheap in a film like this if it is paid mm-hmm. off eventually. One of my favorite things, the favorite payoffs, comes in. I mean, you know, John saves the day by shooting the you know one terrorist behind him, then shooting Hans, who proceeds to fall out the window. But they, it wouldn't be just enough for Hans to fall out the window like that. Han is barely holding on. He's got Holly by the wrist, and he's holding on to, guess what, the watch from the beginning. The very symbol that demonstrates, you know, Holly's commitment to work over, you know, her life with John. And so by releasing her from that, by taking the watch off and allowing Rickman to fall... He has completed the character arc of restoring their relationship in a thematic sense. And that is something you would not expect to get out of a movie like Die Hard. Absolutely not. And it is beautifully conceived that way. Cause, and that scene really gets you going because Rickman's such a fun character that even his death is fun in the film. Well, what they did as well with that is that they had him, you know, it's it's set up on like a, a green screen drop, essentially. He's like 10 feet in the air or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they're going to drop him. And the guy was holding his arm said, all right, I'm going to drop you on three. And he dropped him on two. <laughs> so he had that. So that's where you get that surprise reaction, that great reaction from Rickman. He's kind of, th- and it's and playing out in the slow motion like that is great. You can easily picture it in your head for anyone who's even just seen the clip, let alone the, the film, you know. The moment plays out, the score blares with it. It's a fantastic moment. And then they've got that great wide shot of the dummy falling from on top of the tower. <laughs> it is so good. It's flailing his arm. Yeah, it's great. It's a great scene, a great death, you know. And our, our director did say, you know, when he's like pulling up into the hotel, you got like the bright colors in the background. Then you have the, the central tree, kind of like a bonsai in the center. He said mm-hmm. that he wanted uh, Rickman to be speared through that after his fall, which you know, really would have put an icing on it, but it's such an effective scene how it is. I think with that, like, you might have gone a bit too far. Like, it would have been, like, too over the top to have yeah. him speared by, like... I mean, if you want to go that far, you might as well make it a Christmas tree at that point with the decorations <laughs> and all. He ends up being yeah. the star on top. <laughs> I think that's kind of what he was leaning into, which would have been an interesting choice. But Right, but, but maybe just a little too silly. Like, save that for the parody, right? Right, yeah. But yeah, I think, um, you know, there's just so much going on in Die Hard that's fantastic. And usually it's, you know, kind of like the direction and the acting that gets credit. Bruce Willis and Alan Rickman certainly get more, you know, of the credit than generally people. But there's so much going on in the film that really deserves credit. And I don't think that the, the specifically the writing and the score in particular as well is not highlighted enough. I love the use of Christmas music throughout the film. I think the various elements of the score just really accentuate the moments throughout. And, of course, as we point out, every piece is written. And the cinematography as well, that's something else we forgot to point out. You know, it's really great. There's a lot of really great camera movements throughout the film that do not get talked about. I guess we should talk a little bit about the cinematography, how well it follows every shot and how, how nicely framed everything is. Yeah. And again, it's one of those things that doesn't get talked about. And probably I think it's because it's done in a way that you're not supposed to think about it necessarily so much. And same thing goes for like the, the score and the writing, you know, it's all done to be hidden away, you know, like your brain notices it, but you don't necessarily. I guess that's what I was going to say. That is that while we were watching it, I was saying like, I never noticed the music before because it's done so effectively that it's, you know, if something's done that well, if something's framed well enough, you know, it, you, you shouldn't mentally have to think about it. It should, uh, 
it should already occur to you that this is the natural way it has to be. Right. For especially for general audience people, you know, out there, they're not typically going to pick up on these kind of things because they're not thinking about it. They're allowing themselves to be immersed more. Whereas me and you are intentionally <laughs> more detached from what's going on to analyze. That's what we do. That's what we enjoy. Yeah. You know, we want to see the the mechanics behind the the film and how it works and we get enjoyment out of that. And I'm sure many listeners out there do as well. Yeah, I mean, I think we get a lot a bigger or a greater joy than we do just being sunk into a movie by actually participating i mean not that we movies, don't do that either though yeah. certainly <laughs> yeah not that we don't enjoy films but i mean we watch so many but uh i think that remember when films used to be immersive and you had fun with them man yeah uh, that was a long time ago <laughs> but i think that so, we get so much more out of like diving in and getting a fuller ex- of die hard that's a that's a silly thing to do kind of but it's fun Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that we don't have the ability to, to kind of turn that off and just absorb, you know, a film for what it is. And then there are also, of course, the films that no matter how hard I, I try and just, you know, like view it objectively, it just hits me over the head with emotions and, you know, feelings and everything. And I'm just floored. Plenty of films like that. Die Hard still manages to impress in so many ways, even on repeat viewings. This has to be like my most rewatched film ever. I've been watching this film since I was a damn teenager. And I'm still marveling at it. I can't believe how great it is and how well it holds up. Uh, Die Hard is 30 years old now this year. Did you know that? Oh, that's incredible. Yep, 30 years, and it's still just as great as it has been on every previous watch I've I've seen of it. You know, I'm I'm floored by how great Die Hard manages to be still. It's perfect. I think it's absolutely perfect. I mean, I guess I should know that it's as old as I am, but it's also... uh... (laughs) It comes from the time that I do, so I feel like uh, I haven't seen it as much as you have, right? I've seen it maybe ten times, but it is one of the most watchable action films. Ten times is still, let's point out, extremely impressive for rewatches. Yeah. You know, don't don't let my obsession with the film, you know, kind of uh, demute yours. No. You know, you've, ten times is still a lot. I'm a great fan of the film. I love it. I, I just think it's a... I don't have the same relationship to you did. Like uh, I probably watched it, you know, ten times on on TV at one point. I never mm-hmm. owned it till this week. So, well, I'm glad you got it. You got that really nice uh, copy there. I think they released it for the 30th anniversary. It's got the Christmas theme to it. it. Looks like a sweater, you know. Yeah, yeah, the ho 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 cover. Yeah, I like that. I, I wish I could get that slip for for my copy, but. I've bought, like, five copies of Die Hard before. <laughs> yeah. they, they, I usually find different versions on sale. I'm like, oh, I should get this, too. This one has more special features. This one's in 4K. Yeah. I mean, this was $5 for a Blu-ray. Are you kidding? Like, I'm going to watch this at least four or five more yeah. times. And it's going to be worth I mean, it. you should be watching this every year on Christmas Eve, you know, yeah. with your family around. You got to start your daughter on this young. Get her into the Die Hard spirit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Will do. <laughs> all right well i think that's about as jolly as we can get for this week huh yeah you know, i think that's i think that's all the christmas this, i could take yeah this podcast will be coming out just right before the holiday here this will probably be the, our last big content before we just kind of release the grinch and other easy stuff for your reading you know while you're sipping your coffee around the tree yeah this will be good for you if you're uh you're vacationing on christmas need something for your drive hopefully we did the job yeah you know, so until, what's that, next uh, week after this, we'll be talking about 
some of our favorite things from this year. This is, it'll be kind of a recap of all of 2018, taking it all in. Yeah, I can't wait for that. I have a lot to say. <laughs> I, I'm sure you do. <laughs> all right, Calvin, I'll see you next week. All right, Merry Christmas. Take care. Merry Christmas. Come out to the coast. We'll get together, have a few laughs.